Good morning, Indelible Grace Church. Uh, today's text is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. This is in your bulletin. Uh, please follow along as you read the Word of God. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of God. We've been going through uh, the book of Deuteronomy and um, this is a collection of Moses's sermons or speeches to the people of God before they enter the promised land. And this is a very famous passage, and I'll talk a little bit more about um, the significance of it in just a moment. And uh, I'm using up my one pain, plain passing moment right now. Uh, but before I speak of that more, um, I want to uh, refer to something that I, I watched as a kid and um, back in the 90s, I would watch Saturday Night Live. There was a period of uh, of time in Saturday Night Live when there was, uh, they call it the, the dark period, the dark ages of Saturday Night Live when it wasn't that funny. Um, but before, that, that was kind of in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, in the early 90s, there was a character on Saturday Night Live by the name of Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley, and this was a character um, created by Al Franken, one of the, one of the uh, comedians on the show. And Stuart Smalley was the host of a self-help show called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. And in this show, this character, he would say uh, kind and generous things to his viewers. These were sayings to, um, to keep them motivated, to keep them encouraged, so that if they were having a bad day, they would have a good day. And the trademark affirmation of Stuart Smalley was this. He would look himself in the mirror and he would say this you're good enough you're smart enough and doggone it people like you you're good enough you're smart enough and doggone it people like you and this was the phrase that Stuart Smalley would speak to himself every single day to remind himself that yes he was worthy of esteem he was good as good as he wanted to be I'm not going to comment too much on the the sentiment of this phrase I've spoken about Things similar to this in the past, but uh, I just want to use this as an, as an example. Something that people would say to themselves. This is what Stuart Smalley would say to himself, this fictional character. Um, but what about us? What do we say to ourselves every day? There are some people that have 
daily mantras. Um, they'll say them to remind themselves of um, their perceived identity. This is who I am. This is what I should be doing. Uh, they'll say something to themselves to motivate them. They have certain goals in life, so they'll tell themselves, um, this is what you should be doing. This is uh, your goal in life. This is your vision. And they tell themselves this every day. What, do you, what would you say to yourself every day if you had to say something? The Israelites had something to say to themselves. Um, the Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And they were given something called the Shema. The Shema. And this is a couple verses that we read in our passage in Deuteronomy 6. And I'll read it for you again. This is in verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Shema, the Shema. This this statement, this saying, this is an expression of belief for the Jews. This was their creed. Uh, this is a confession of their belief. And this was a reminder to them that this is their duty to God. And this was what would give shape to their life. Moses is telling them, these are the things you should say to yourself. These are the things that you should say to your children. This is what you should teach your children. And it was given to them to memorize. Um, and even to this day, practicing Jews will recite this, the Shema, twice a day. This was their daily saying. Now, the Shema is not just for the Israelites in today's passage, not just for the practicing Jews today. The Shema is something for us to take in, for us to memorize, for us to consider and to give shape to our lives. For those of us who are Christ followers, the Shema, this Old Testament saying, this was given to us to help us follow Christ. It tells us this is what it looks like to follow Jesus to look at God and to love him with everything that we are. I mentioned earlier the context of this phrase. Uh, Moses is speaking to the Israelites before the promised land. And for the next several chapters that we're going to look at in Deuteronomy, it contains statutes and commandments to the people of God. This is what you should be doing. These are the commandments you should be keeping. This is what you need to keep in mind before you enter the promised land. And chapter 6, what we just read, it begins this section of Deuteronomy. Now, why does this matter? Why does the Shema matter? Uh, The Jews, why did they recite this? And why do they recite this now? Um, It tells them of their purpose. It tells them, this is the reason why you exist. The reason why you exist is because there is a God. He is your God. And it's your duty, it's your job to love him. Um, Viktor Frankl, he is a well-known author. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And he is a survivor of the Holocaust in World War II. And um, the, the the story for him goes like this. In, in 1943, he was arrested by the Nazis and he was put in a concentration camp. And 
when he was sent there, everything of value was taken from him. They took all of his possessions. Everything that he owned was taken from him. He was separated from his wife and his family. And one of the things that was taken from him that he treasured so much besides beyond his, uh, his, his family members, the one thing that he cherished, the one thing that he, that he treasured was the copy of a book that he was writing. This was his life work. And he, because it was so important to him, he sewed it into the jacket that he wore um, to make sure that it was safe, to make sure that it was not lost. But when the Nazis took everything, they also took the jacket that contained his manuscripts. And he described losing this manuscript as, he said, this was my spiritual child. And when they took that away from him, when they took his jacket with this manuscript, his life work, he was destroyed um, and in his book, Frankel, he says that in this moment, when this book was taken from him, he experienced a total hopelessness, complete despair, especially as he thought of the loss of this manuscript. Um, so as his clothes were taken from him, uh, taken from him, he was given the garments of another prisoner that had died. Um, this was to replace what he went into the camp with. And he made a discovery in this jacket that he was given at the camp. And I'm going to read his words from his book. When I had to surrender my clothes and in turn inherit the worn out rags of an inmate who had already been sent to the gas chamber immediately after his arrival at the Auschwitz railway station. Instead of the many pages of my, man of my manuscripts, I found in a pocket of the newly acquired coat. This is the new coat that he had. Um, one single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book containing the most important Jewish prayer, the Shema, which we just read. How should I have interpreted such a coincidence other than as a challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper? Frankel goes on to say that it was the discovery of the Shema in this jacket pocket that gave him a renewed focus. It puts... It put him on the path to finding meaning to his suffering and to his life, despite his circumstances. So this is, in a nutshell, Viktor Frankl's story. That when everything else was stripped from him, when his life work was taken from him, he was left with the Shema. The Shema. The Shema mattered to Viktor Frankl as he was at Auschwitz. It mattered to him, it matters to the Jewish people, and it matters also to us because we need something to articulate our purpose in life. So as we look at the passage, I have three points today in our, in our, um, for our sermon. Uh, number one is the command. What does the Shema uh, mean? What does it say? What is the basis of the command? That's our second point. And number three, the command keeper. The command keeper. Our first point, which is the command so I've been using this word Shema. Actually, Pastor Michael mentioned it in his sermon last week. Uh, Shema is a Hebrew word for to listen or to hear. And in the Hebrew language, when you tell someone to listen or to, to, to hear what you're saying, um, you're saying more than just to let the words go into your mind and to process them. When you hear something, the Israelite way of hearing something was to hear it to process it, to ruminate on it, and then to do something about it. And this is the command to the Israelites. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. 
not just listen, but do something, Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the command. The first thing you do is you perk up, you listen, you pay attention, you move aside the distractions and you listen intently to what's being said to you. And then the Shema goes on. Oh, this is where the word we get Shema. Um, I think I mentioned that, but just want to make sure that as I continue to say this word, we understand that Shema means to listen, to hear. Um, there are three elements to the second part of the Shema. Moses tells the people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And I just want to take a few moments to explain uh, in short what these words mean and the significance of them in the context. So first there is the heart. The Hebrew understanding of the heart is that this is the, the central um, unit of thought and affections. This is where you think and make sense of the world. And as you experience the world, this is where your emotions arise. This is where you um, make sense of your emotions. This is where, the, when, when you express yourself, this is where it originates. It's in the heart. Your heart is where the guiding principles of your life are established. It's where all the desires that you have, the affection you have for things or for people, this is where they are tended to and fostered. The heart is the center of your being. If you behave a certain way, if you say certain things, it comes from your heart. This is why we read in this proverb, this well-known proverb that says, guard your heart, protect your heart, because from it flows all of life. The heart is the place of our will and affections. And Moses says, love God with all your hearts. Make your heart the place where your love for God is harbored and tended to and cultivated and built up. And he goes on, love God with all your soul. Um, there is a, There are two ways to look at your soul. There is the Hebrew way and the Greek way of understanding the soul. And for us as Westerners, we've grown up with Western thinking. Um, we think the Greek way. When we think of soul, we might be thinking of this invisible element that make that makes uh, make, makes up a part of us. This is the invisible spirit that is in our body, in a sense. Um, there's this physical aspect to us, and then there is this non-physical um spirit part of us that's the greek understanding of soul but the hebrew understanding of soul is much more expansive um, when moses speaks of loving god with their soul he's referring to uh, the whole of a person not just this um, theoretical invisible spirit inside your physical body this is the whole of your person everything that you are um it means when you love God with all your soul, you're devoting your entire physical existence, uh, however long you have on earth, all of this should be devoted to the Lord. So there's a heart, there's a soul, and then there is the might. Love the Lord your God with all your might. And this is used as a word to, to express expansiveness. Um, there's a Hebrew word for might, which is miod, miod, and this is a, I, 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 um, as I was doing research on these words, the uh, one of the commentators I read was this. He said, uh, the might 
that we that's in us is the muchness of us the muchness of us this is not a real english word but everything that you are um all of it uh it encompasses all of it this is to intensify what moses has already said um the muchness it means that all of us is devoted to loving god we take every opportunity to express our love to him everything in our life from our relationships to our finances to our uh, physical energy to our time our schedule our budgets all of this is your might and you use this to love god so love the lord your god with heart soul and might but moses goes beyond that he he emphasizes those things and he emphasizes them even more with this word which is all this word that precedes all these nouns love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your might what does it mean to love god with all of ourselves um there's an illustration uh, I'm going to take from Gattaca. Actually, Pastor Michael has taken uh, illustrations from the movie Gattaca a couple times over the past several years. This is if you can talk if you talk to him, this is one of his favorite movies. I'm going to take a another scene from this movie which I think illustrates well what it means to do something with all your might. So, um to familiarize familiarize ourselves with the movie. This is a sci-fi movie in the set in the future where scientists have the ability to to select the best hereditary traits from parents to to uh the kind of engineer children so that their children don't have any diseases, so they don't have any disorders or anything that could hold them back. So, um if you want a tall child who has a certain who's at a certain type of intellect and has certain gifts you could engineer that type of child so there was a program to create these type of children and these are known as valids these are valids these are uh, engineered uh children and then there are people conceived outside the program they are known as invalids and if you don't have these superior genetic traits then you're you're doomed to a life of just mediocrity and you can only take the remedial these um these very uh, remedial jobs so there are two two uh the main character Vincent he has an older brother who is or a younger brother who who was one of these children conceived in the program where he he has superior genetics where he's uh has perfect eyesight he is the right height he has uh, intellect and he's strong physically and then there's Vincent and he is an invalid or invalid and his job is as a janitor he has no meaningful future ahead of him um so he, there's Vincent and there's his bro- there's his brother Anton um one of them is a valid the other is an invalid and as kids these two brothers they would often play a game of chicken where they would swim out into the ocean and uh the loser would be the one who would be the first to turn back and because Vincent never had superior genes every time he played this game with his brother his brother would be able to swim further out than he could um of course he could because he has superior genes um but over time Vincent was able to catch up more and more until one day this is the last swim of their childhood Vincent and Anton they go out into the ocean and they're swimming and swimming and swimming and finally after 
all the times of them swimming out into the ocean and every time Anton wins, finally Vincent wins. He's able to swim further than his brother does. Um, and then toward the end of the movie, toward the end of the movie, Vincent and Anton, they, they decide to swim one more time so that Vincent could prove to his brother that just because you were created in this program uh, doesn't mean you're better. And the two brothers, they go into the ocean in, in the middle of the night. They swim um, just like they did at Children this time. And this time, once more, Vincent, he's able to defeat his brother. Anton is stupefied because he thought for sure he would win this contest. But Vincent's able to outlast him. Um, and, 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 and Anton, he asked his brother, how are you able to do this? How were you able to beat me? And this is Vincent's reply. You want to know how I beat you? This is how I did it. I never saved anything for the swim back. I never saved anything for the swim back. And this is a picture of what it means to love God with all of ourselves. To love him completely with all our heart and soul and might. We don't save anything for the swim back. We give every last bit of ourselves. What about my career? Or what about my family? What about my plans for my life? What about my physical energy? What about my time? What about my relationships? What about my money? What about the things that I care about the most? To love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might means that you have no reservations in loving God. It means that if he asks you to do something, you go, okay. It means never saving anything for the swim back, never saving or holding back anything for ourselves. So this is the command to the Israelites, Moses says. And why does he say all of it belongs to God? Because the Israelites are entering a culture where there is, this is a, a polytheistic culture, a culture where there are multiple gods and people are expected to worship all the gods because certain gods would do certain things for you, but not everything. But Moses says, I know that you're going to be tempted to worship these Canaanite gods, but your devotion, your loyalty belongs to Yahweh. It belongs to God and God alone. So what does it mean to us? We don't have gods like the Canaanites do. But we all have gods. And I suspect that we struggle with them every day. Comfort, stability, your reputation, respect, having a relationship, being accepted by the people that you like. Your portfolio, your children's safety and education. These are all gods. These are all idols that we're tempted to worship. We're tempted to give our energies and our time to them. And Moses says, don't give it to them because that belongs to God alone. So love the Lord your God. Now, the question here is this. Okay, I understand that I should love God. I'm hearing it. But how do you love God? 
the biblical understanding of love is that it's not an emotion. It's not something that you feel primarily. Rather, it's an act of the will. Um, think of the people that you love. There are people in your life that you just like to be around. You love them. Some people, they're easy to love. They, they make us laugh and we make, we can, they laugh at our jokes. Um, it's easy to connect with them on, uh, an emotional level or whatever level matters to you. They feel like a missing puzzle piece to who you are. They feel safe to you. They feel like home to you. Um, it's easy to love those people. And then there are people that you just don't like. They vex you. Their existence grates on you. You don't like the way that they do things. You don't like their preferences for politics or people or cultures. Um, but we're told to love people even like that. So how can we do it? This is what it looks like from a biblical understanding. To love someone means that we, we do loving acts toward them. We look for what we might look for what's respectable and admirable in them. And um, we, we respond to those things. We sacrifice for them. And over time, you may begin to like them because you first love them. And maybe that becomes a type of love that you feel when you become committed to someone else's good. Your heart is turned toward them. And this is a little picture of what it means to love God. It means that you put yourself in a position where you do things that show God that you're committed to loving Him. You obey Him. You learn and study what's good about Him. You carry out expressions of love in the hope that one day you will actually feel that love. And as you do that, the feelings of love, the desire to love God will come and maybe one day you will love God on an emotional level. One of the principles of the Christian life is this, that when we change our minds to obey and love and honor God with our lives, He'll change your heart. You may not feel it in the moment. You may not feel it for a long, long time. But when you change your mind, when you commit yourself to loving God, and when you commit to putting yourself in a position where you look at God, where you can obey God when you don't feel it, your heart changes little by little. And you become more like Jesus in that way. We so often think of it the other way around. We think that, um, that what I'm going to do is I'm going to obey God. I'm going to love him when I feel it. But it's most of the time it's the other way around. That you do the actions of love and then the feelings come. And this is an element of faith. It's doing what does not seem to make sense. It's doing what does not resonate on an emotional level in my heart. Because I have faith that it's going to be worth it. Even when I don't feel it, God is worthy of my obedience and worship. So this is our first point, and my next two points are a bit quicker. We're told to love God. This is the command, to listen to the command, and then to devote our entire person to loving God. That's a command. The basis of the command is this. The, ba- the command is grounded in the character of God. 
Um, we're told in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Uh, A.W. Tozer has this famous quote, and I'll read it to you. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man at, is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. How you live and how you think depends on what you perceive God to be. If he's a stingy God who's demanding obedience from you, your heart's not going to be turned toward him. But if you believe that he's good, if you believe that he's loving, if you believe that he is sovereign over all things and works all things for your good out of love and wisdom, your outlook on life will change. And maybe even your actions and words will reflect that. And Moses says this. He says that the Lord is our God. This is your God. This is the one who stands over you, who rules over you. This is the one who deserves all your attention and worship. And Moses says, because this is true, love him with everything that you are. Now, this is a difficult thing to do, to love anything with all your heart. Have you ever loved anything 100% with no ulterior motive, with no shadow of doubt or turning? This is not just difficult. This is impossible. This is impossible, this command. And herein lies the bad news. Can you imagine if you were an Israelite? Every day you recited this. I'm supposed to love God with all of myself? This is a demand for perfect obedience. To love an invisible God you cannot see. Every movement, every decision, every moment of the day. How can I love God in that way? This is a problem. And this was a problem for Martin Luther. This is the, the reformer before he was a reformer. Before he was a reformer in the, in the 1500s, he was a Catholic monk. And this was a man who was racked with guilt because he read the law and he said, I do not live up to it. Uh, Pastor John gave a great sermon a couple of weeks ago, the, the purpose of the law. And one of the purposes of the law is to show you that you cannot keep the law. This is what's Martin Luther felt deep in his bones. He was always racked with guilt because he would always think about the sins that he committed. He'd always think about how he didn't, he didn't uh, match, he, he wasn't able to live up to the commands that he saw in the Bible. And there are stories of him going to the confession box. This is what the Catholics do. Um, six hours a day, just going over everything he did wrong, confessing it. And the, the other monks, they got so tired of him going because he was he was bothersome because he all he could think about was his guilt and someone there's a story of someone asking him martin luther do you love god and here's martin luther the king martin martin luther the monk who's devoted his entire life to studying god and to maybe loving god and he said this love god sometimes i hate him because I see him as a judge who points out everything that I do wrong. And Martin Luther lived like this for years and years of his life. 
until one day he came across this verse. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And this is what changed Martin Luther's heart. And this is where this was a spark of the Reformation in the 1500s. Because Martin Luther, he began to understand the gospel in that moment. He began to understand that you cannot keep the law, but the good news is that you, even though you can't, someone has kept the law on your behalf and you live by faith in this person. We have a hint of this hope in the confession. Moses says the Lord is one and the word for one, the Hebrew word is achad, achad. And this is a word that means that the Lord is one, um, but it refers to a type of a, the, the theological phrasing is compound unity. Um, in Genesis, there this word, echad, one, is also used to describe Adam and Eve as a man and wife becoming one. Um, these two people make up one singular unit. And there's a tiny little hint in this word. It's pointing to the fact that God is not a singular person, but that in the Godhead there are multiple persons. This is a tiny shadow of the hope that's in this passage. And the hope is not that God's people can muster up enough willpower to love God as they should. When the Israelites were reciting this, this, this command to themselves every day, they had to look forward to something else. They had to look forward to the hope. They had, they had to look forward to uh, the fact that God would be God. Not that they'd be able to keep the law perfectly. And this is this idea of covenant. That God would keep his covenant promises to them. Um, here's something really interesting. Did you know that in the Old Testament... There's only one time that anyone expresses love for God. It's King Solomon in 1 Kings 3. But not a single time in the Old Testament other than this, not a single time in the Psalms even, does anyone express love for God. Why is that? I think part of the answer is because people realize they cannot love God as they should. But this is the command that every Jew had to obey. And why does the Bible speak so little about man's love for God? Why does the Bible speak so little about our love for God? I think it's because we have a pretty bad track record of obeying God, of loving God. We're told to love God, but it's so hard to do that. The Bible has very few stories that explicitly state that manner that a man or woman loves God, but it has a whole lot to say about God's love for man. And there's this beautiful passage which we went over in the call to worship that John led us in. This is a covenant promise of God. This is from Jeremiah 32, 37 through 42. So a little bit beyond what we read in the passage in the call to worship. But let me read it to you and listen to what's being said here. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. 
I will give them one heart. God says, I will give them the heart that is necessary to love him. And one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Again, here is God initiating this love relationship. God is the one that has to give us the affections, to give us the feelings. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And then verse 41, listen to the words of this verse. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. What is God saying? I'm going to love you with all my heart. I'm going to show you my faithfulness with all my soul. So who is doing the loving here? We love because God first loved us. This is our hope to keep this command. And it happens because there is a command keeper. This is our final point. This is the gospel. That because we could not keep the law, God sent his son Jesus to keep the law on our behalf. And for all the mistakes we did, all the rebellion, all the sin, Jesus took that on, on the cross. And God poured out his wrath, his justice, his anger on sin and rebellion. And Jesus took it on. And he said, I will receive this punishment on behalf of my people because this is my love for my people. And do you hear this? We're told to love God with everything that we are. But on the cross, Jesus loved us with everything that he was, with all his heart, all his soul, all his might and strength. All that was spent because God loves his people. Because God loves his people. This is our hope to keep the command. You were created to love God. It's your purpose to be a lover. But you cannot love him unless you understand his love for you. This is why Jesus says in the New Testament as well, he reiterates the command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can do that, Christian. You can do that now. Because you're given the Holy Spirit. Because Christ has done it on your behalf. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. When I survey the wondrous cross. And it contains this wonderful line. It says, when I survey the wondrous cross, this is an expression of God's love for us. Love so amazing, so divine. It demands my life, my soul, my all. The love of God showed for you demands your soul. You're all. You can do it because the gospel is true. Will you pray with me? Father, we despair when, we to- when we're told to love you. Because how can we muster up affection for you? How can we sing ourselves or to will ourselves to love you? We can't. We can't. We can try, but maybe like Martin Luther, we just end up hating you rather than loving you. Because we can't keep the command. But you gave us Christ to keep the command on our behalf. That is our hope. And I pray that this would cause us to look to you. I pray that this would make us love you. Because we've seen true love expressed to us. So that we can love you back. 
make this true of us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.